Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Jeffrey Baden, PhD, is the president and founder of the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute in Seattle, Washington. He's been an internationally recognized leader in nutritional medicine for more than 25 years. Dr. Bland is the co-founder of the Institute for Functional Medicine and is chairman emeritus of IFM's board of directors. Dr. Bland is the author of the 2014 book, The Disease Delusion, Conquering the Cause of Chronic Illness for a Happier, Longer and Health, Happier Life. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, it's been a couple of years, but I'm really glad to have you back down in Australia and you're um, obviously coming to Congress in 2017. Welcome back. Well, Nathan, I can't tell you how excited I am both to have this opportunity to talk with you and also to uh, revisit what um, I really see as kind of my second home for all the many years that I've been there, uh, many times that I've been there over the years, starting in, I think, around 1982. I, I believe I've visited more than 50 times. So um, it, I, I feel a real absence, and it's going to be fun to be back and see uh, see both my, my colleagues that I've known for the years and a lot of your new people that I'm sure are growing up in the field and making significant contributions fantastic yes we're certainly looking forward to you arriving here so yeah it's been a few years and um you've obviously you haven't been idle um a couple of things you've been up to that i wouldn't mind you just uh updating our listeners on firstly the um personalized lifestyle medicine institute you've um founded that tell us a little bit about that and who's that aimed for yeah thank you um I think in order to describe that, I'd like to go back just a step and talk about the start of IFM because uh, the Institute for Functional Medicine is kind of the uh, the bridging over into the formation of the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute. So in in 1990, uh, my wife uh, said to me, she said, Jeff, you know, you've been traveling a considerable amount internationally. You've got all these colleagues around the world. You're really developing uh, kind of a new model for healthcare, it seems, with these connections you're making among these thought leaders uh, in, in places like Australia, Asia, uh, Europe, uh, uh, Central America, Canada, and uh, don't you think it would be uh, desirable to sit down and, and bring some of these thought leaders together and really talk about a, a what if, a what would medicine look like if you were to really think in kind of a utopian way as to what, uh, what it might look like. Uh, if you took away barriers of credentialing and reimbursement and administration, and you just talked about the purity of of, uh, of how healthcare could be delivered in the most effective way, so that led with her advocacy to us um, having these meetings actually in 1989 and 90 in, in uh, Victoria, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, and where we invited uh, 30 to 40 of, of the thought leaders that I had great respect for across many di- different disciplines, and we sat down. Uh, and we just had a whiteboard discussion about the what if, or what would medicine look like if we were to think in an idealistic way about how it would be formed. That that discussion was so fruitful and so um, interesting that we decided to have a second go at it in 1990. And it was in 1990 then that I kind of came up with the thought, uh, actually on the Saturday, Saturday night before the last day of the second meeting on Sunday, I, I came up with this concept that we ought to be calling it functional medicine, because it seemed that we were really dealing with aspects of function uh, that were preceding to pathology, that really described the origin of disease, not just what you call it. And um, there was some controversy and discussion about that term, because function had already been used in medicine as kind of a pejorative term, either 
uh, referring to psychosomatic illness or or geriatric uh, illness or geriatric disability. And so um, people said, well, you know, it already has a kind of a stigma associated with that term. It's not a really good one. But I had been reviewing the literature and seeing that uh, during that period of time, again, this is 1990, but a number of papers were being published, in fact, several hundred that were in the area of functional radiology, functional cardiology, functional endocrinology. So it seemed like it was starting to get uh, a new connotation. So uh, we then chose to call this movement the, uh, the functional medicine movement. It was a systems biology approach to healthcare. Uh, we formed the Institute for Functional Medicine, and we had our first uh, international meeting in, uh, in Maui, Hawaii in 1991. And I'm very pleased to say that about a third of those uh, original founders of the Institute for Functional Medicine were Australian doctors who came all the way oh, wow. over uh, to, uh, to be with us for that founding meeting in Maui. Um, Bob Eust and Ian Brighthope and uh, Emily Sally and I mean it was a whole group of very interesting Australian docs that were in that formative period. Um, from that then, uh, from 1991 to 2017, it's been quite amazing to watch uh, the growth of the Institute for Functional Medicine. In December of this last year, it had its um, 100,000 practitioner go through its training courses. Um, it, it is now an international organization, and uh, it is uh, CME approved to provide continuing medical education courses, and, and it has a medical textbook that's in 17 medical schools, and it is, I think, done a pretty remarkable, <laughs> excuse me, a remarkable job of spreading this this concept of systems biology and medicine. Now, all of that sounds great, except during that uh, period of time, something very interesting happened in the evolution of the organization. When we founded it, <clears throat> there were two objectives that we really were trying to achieve. One was uh, to put together a teachable curriculum that could uh, inform and assist practitioners to employ systems thinking and functional approaches in their practices successfully to improve the outcome in complex chronic illness. And I think that uh, the Institute has done a really good job in that regard. I think its curriculum, its faculty, its courses are top class and delivering really good teachable information uh, that is um, uh, able to be applied by uh, the, the people who go through the courses in their own practices. The other objective was to always maintain a cutting edge of new concepts in the functional medicine arena uh, by bringing in outside people and new ideas and, and making sure that we always had a robust learning environment. Um, the challenge with that in an organization that's providing CME accredited courses, as you know, is that to maintain your accreditation, you have to have standards of uh, clinical applicability, and you have to fulfill kind of the standards of uh, customary, usual and customary practice. And and it's very difficult to bring in into a, a certified ACCME approved uh, curriculum a lot of new information that hasn't been subjected to evidence-based testing and and hasn't gone through uh, kind of peer review and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And, and the new ideas are often slightly outside that, that range. So with that as a, um, as a concern, uh, I thought maybe we need another organization, an organization that is not bound by CME, that can be kind of the prospector of these new ideas and can, can uh, deal with a broad range of things that are happening in biometrics and wearable devices and 
and genomics and and uh, big data and uh, uh, informatics and and social media that are all related to healthcare, but don't necessarily get in yet to a teachable curriculum. So it was with that in mind that in 2013 uh, we decided to establish the um, Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, which is an all-commerce type of institute. We're not constrained by CME. Uh, we're solely based on supporting and advocating personalized lifestyle healthcare across all disciplines, uh, some of which are not even directly in healthcare. They can be in uh, in technologies of different types that will ultimately allow us to more assess, uh, more accurately and conveniently assess aspects of human function. And when I say function, I really mean both physiological, physical, cognitive, and emotional function. So the uh, PLMI, Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute, in 2013 was informed with a mandate uh, to be a public trust organization that would be delivering information and content around this uh, cutting edge of new technologies and new thoughts uh, uh, that would really advance uh, the ability to manage chronic disease by uh, personalized intervention of individuals who are ready to make changes in their in their lifestyle and uh, diet, exercise, activity patterns, stress management, all of that thing, all those things. And I'm very proud to say we've had over a million hits on our social media wow. site. We've wow. got a variety of videos that are available uh, that have come from our four conferences that we've uh, sponsored over the last four years. And uh, we've had you know presenters that are Nobel Prize winners and we're extraordinary thought leaders who are bringing new ideas into the field that we're trying to uh, incorporate to keep the uh, uh, the functional medicine concept at the leading edge without hopefully dropping over into the bleeding edge. So <laughs> that's that's PLMI basically, and our and our website is uh, is a PLM it's a PLMinstitute.org is our is our website address. Great, and you've also got the fifth annual Thought Leaders Consortium. Um, in October 13, 14, 2017 in Seattle, Washington. What's the, the theme there? Yeah, thank you. I, you know, this has been an evolving model for us uh, over the last several years because this will be our fifth um, consortium. We call it Thought, Le Thought Leaders Consortium. And the title of this, I think, uh, is quite provocative. It's um, New Models in Personalized Lifestyle Healthcare in the Age of Scientific Wellness. And the term scientific wellness may seem almost like an oxymoron because people don't believe that you can scientificize, I just made that word up, um, <laughs> a wellness. Uh, but we are collaborating with uh, Dr. Lee Hood at the Institute for Systems Biology. Some uh, people may be familiar with his name. He's um, uh, won the last award. He's uh, was considered um, for, for decades to be uh, one of the world's leading immunologists. He's the developer and inventor of four of the instruments that were used uh, for deciphering of the human genome. Um, he's, and he's at the top of his game, so to speak. And he runs an institute that he founded uh, called the Institute for Systems Biology that uh, is world-renowned. And uh, they happen to be in Seattle, which is where we are. And so we, we've collaborated um, uh, in this, this meeting, and we're bringing in, actually, uh, the Providence Health System, which is the fourth largest health system in America that has Swedish hospitals. and. St. Joe's hospitals and Providence hospitals and all their clinics in, in all the western states and we're bringing in the Cancer Care Alliance and uh, we're bringing in the Institute for Functional Medicine as well as the Institute for Systems Biology into this collaborative meeting in Seattle on October 13th and 14th to really examine what are the models of personalized lifestyle healthcare 
in, in this age of scientific wellness that will really make a difference in moving the needle in, uh, in chronic uh, healthcare management over the, over the years to come. So um, any, any of your listeners that might be interested, I, we certainly can provide them more information, but uh, we always uh, make it a, a commitment at the end of these meetings to have the uh, digital versions of the um, presentations, the video versions, uh, available for free on our website some wow. two or three months after the course. So they will be available uh, widely you know, after the course has been delivered. Yeah, I see um, the 2016 ones are up there as well, which is fantastic. Now, um, before we move into our topic for today, I want to talk about your um, the functional medicine update. This is something um, myself and my colleagues have been um, really valuing for many, many years. And um, as we're just starting to get into podcasts now, I'm realizing that the triumphs and the struggles of doing it, but you've been doing it for a very, very long time, 35 years. And you talked about in the PLMI how you're looking for prospectors and on the cutting edge. Well, I think you're the, the perfect candidate for leading that because I think you've got a, a, an incredible track record. Um, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who we also had on the podcast, said that you are the, the Steve Jobs of functional medicine. Um, but looking back over your history, I'm almost... I want to coin the term you the Nostradamus of functional medicine because a lot of the things you looked at a long, long time ago have um, only finally now come to sort of popularity. Um, if we wouldn't mind indulging, I'd like to just uh, go through a bit of a, a track record to give the listeners a bit of an insight or appreciation of how you really are and were um, on the cutting edge. So I've gone through some of the archives and we listen to them regularly. But and I still think if you listen to a, something from the, you know the nineties, it'd be relevant today. Um, for example, nineteen ninety seven, you were looking at resveratrol back then and green tea and this um, concept, which was probably refuted by modern science about intestinal permeability. Nineteen ninety eight, you were looking at things like coconut oil, um, which has become almost a fad today. NF kappa beta, the inflammatory marker. In 1999, you uh, interviewed this young young uh, neurologist by the name of David Perlmutter, who's now obviously become uh, very popular and rightly so. I found it intriguing that the same year you were starting to talk about this intestinal microbiome, which from my um, PubMed search back in 1999, there was only 57 papers. That's about one a week, whereas last year alone, there was uh, 137 papers published each and every week on the microbiome, and that's what we're obviously going to talk about this afternoon. Um, 2000, you started talking about the MTHFR SNPs, which in Australia has only been really popular maybe the past five or so years. 2002, you were talking about gluten sensitivity back then and this concept of nutrigenomics. Um, 2003, vitamin D was on your radar, and again, probably five, seven, ten years later, it's becoming really popular now. It's not just the, the bone, quote-unquote, vitamin. 2004, you're looking at paleo diets, and as we know now, that's very, very popular. The blood-brain barrier you were introduced and microglia. I think before that, the, the brain was thought to be sort of sterile. And now we know that neuroinflammation is behind things like Alzheimer's and autism and depression. Um, and obviously recently, you've been looking at um, the microbiome. So we'll, we'll touch upon them. But just going through that list, um, my first question now that I'm sort of in this side of the, the um, microphone trying to find people is how did you find these people? How did you have the finger on the right pulse when there's so much information out there? It's just extraordinary that what you looked at 10, 15 years ago is now, you know, almost mainstream now. Well, first of all, I want to just tell you how much I appreciate you <laughs> putting in the effort to go back and, and just to do a retrospective review. There's a, a lot of stuff in those 34 years uh, doing it every month. I'm, I'm actually very 
amazed when I look back that I never missed a month in 34 yeah. years of doing that, which just in that in itself, it's kind of amazing to me. But I think what uh, really drove me was uh, I was very, very fortunate uh, to have tremendous mentors and um, who were really thought leaders and prospectors. Uh, of course, at the head of that list would have to be Linus Pauling that I had the privilege of, of working for for a couple of years when I was on sabbatical for my university position too. And um, as a consequence of meeting those kinds of people, I got introduced, you know how it is, it's the uh, it's a spreading game that those people introduce you to other people uh, and you get into a circle of thought leaders as a consequence of, of getting introduced into that, uh, that community. And I think that coupled with the fact that I had the privilege of, of travel and, and uh, I, I've logged in way in excess of six million miles Wow. By this time, I'm not sure I lost track, but over six million miles. And so I was running into and hopefully to innovators around the world through these travelers. Uh, many of these people, you know, were coming to my seminars, but I was learning as much from them mm -hmm. and maybe even more uh, than they were learning from me. So I think that uh, I tried to be a very good listener. I also was um, always a student of the primary literature. So uh, even today, I, I still follow, you know, on a routine basis, about 20 journals that I read cover to cover uh, as they come out over the course of the month. So I think it really is very important if you want to be an early prospector that you're A, listening to the right people, and B, you've got a broad range of people you're listening to. You're not just listening in one area, and that you're listening where the first information is coming out. Uh, and, and hopefully it's you know in a peer group peer reviewed form, so it's a at least at first level been reviewed, and you're not having to do all the review work. So I think that's probably how I got on to a lot of these interesting uh, extraordinary innovators over the years. Oh, great, thanks for the tips. I might take some of those. <laughs> okay, so as I said uh, more recently in your FMUs, you've been looking at the microbiome. You've had uh, guests like Rob Knight, Professor Rob Knight, who were fortunate enough to come to Congress next year, uh, 2017, sorry. Um, had some fantastic ones. I, I really liked the helmet therapy uh, FMU. It was very intriguing. So this is obviously the, the, the new medicine, quote-unquote, and you're obviously looking to this. And what we wanted to talk about today was the microbiome in the context of how um, phytochemicals interact with the microbiome. That's probably another area you've been on the cutting edge of is the phytochemicals. And um, so what I wanted to do is look at two things, um, how the phytochemicals are affected by the microbiome and, and vice versa, how the microbiome is affected by phytochemicals. So firstly, um, we obviously ingest these uh, phytochemicals and uh, they can mediate um, health benefits, but what role does the microbiome play with um, the metabolism and availability of the, the phytochemicals? Yeah, thank, thank you. That's a, that's a huge question with a lot of uh, uh, stuff below the surface. So if you would bear with me, I'd like to, in order to get there, I'd like to take a step backward before we take a step forward. Certainly. It, it just... Um, uses an example two things that you brought up uh, in my in the history part one of which is the uh, the gluten story and the other is the Hillman story I'd like to use these a little bit as illustrative of what we're going to talk about as it relates to phytochemicals and the gut so let's first talk about the gluten story um, it was well known 
uh, in the art that in the family of autoimmune diseases, one of the members of that family was uh, celiac disease. And it was well known that celiac disease had an etiology associated with gluten-induced enteropathy. And, uh, and as a consequence of that, the sequelae of uh, symptoms that occur in patients with uh, gluten-based celiac disease are bone loss, inflammatory bowel disease, um, and systemic inflammation. Uh, and I want to emphasize, if we just look at that just as a snapshot, we can immediately see that there's a systemic relationship between an intestinal environmental association, in this case with one of the protein families found in grains called gluten. And one then has to ask the question, how would mechanistically this occur if what's going on in the gut is separated by the GI mucosal brush border cells and the GI lining from that of systemic circulation? And, of course, the answer to that question is it talks about the immune system and how the immune system of the gut is the mediator between what's going on in the gut and what goes on in systemic circulation. Okay, so the, we now know that 50% or more of the immune system is clustered around the gut, and we might ask the teleological question, why? Uh, why why did the universal designer of the human anatomy throw the immune system around the gut? Was it just there was no better place to put it, or <laughs> was it a cosmetic interest, or what was going on? And, and of course, uh, the, uh, the answer that we, we offer is that over the course of living, uh, an average person will eat about uh, 10 tons or more of foreign molecules in their food, unless they're cannibals. And those foreign molecules that represent their food uh, have to be both broken down and their messages of their antigenicity have to be neutralized. And so, meaning their foreignness, so we have this uh, protector against the foreignness of our diet, which is called the gut immune system, that uh, basically is able to um, allow us to tolerate in our foods foreign molecules. Uh, so it's a combination of the digestive system and the immune system of the gut that work together to allow us to eat foods without having a foreign reaction all the time. The problem is that it's not 100% perfect, and there are genetic variations in how effective that is in neutralizing all the components of the diet and not uh, alarming the body to foreigners. And in the case of people that, that have SPRU, tropical celiac disease, their um, genes are such that they're primed towards uh, certain proteins in the gluten family being foreigners that they can't neutralize, so they mount an immune response to them in the form of inflammation. Now, that, I'm going to come back to this because part of that story has now been advanced by, uh, I think, over the last 20 years, a lot more understanding that there are variations on a theme that people that have gluten intolerance are not always necessarily uh, people with celiac disease. There is this, this these other uh, non-celiac gluten intolerant cases, which are milder cases. They may be more systemic in terms of their reaction, but somehow they relate to the uh, adverse response that a body's immune system has to its diet, and so we call them non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But then we start seeing from work of Velocio Fasano, who I know you've uh, interviewed and are familiar with and, and others, that this uh, non-celiac uh, gluten, non gluten sensitivity is probably more than just gluten. There are probably other components 
within cereal-based uh, uh, diets that induce these immune effects. And those effects are in part also related to the composition of the microbiome. And therefore, if you have a certain microbiome, you may be more sensitive to these non-celiac gluten sensitivities or cereal-based grain sensitivities than if you have other microbiomes. So it, it affects people differently based upon how your microbiome uh, responds to your diet. Because your microbiome, this vast community of thousands of different organisms, has its own personality. And it's producing secondary byproducts of the bacterial metabolism that could be also irritating or aggravating to your immune system. So now we've introduced another uh, player in the system, not just the diet itself, but also the environment in which the di diet is being digested and absorbed, which includes the microbiome. Now I want to move from that to the, the, the helminth story that you talked about, which has um, been discussed extensively by Dr. Sidney Baker recently. So how do worms play a role in this? And uh, this comes back to a very interesting part of the story that I, I first learned from an Australian, actually, at Perth, uh, Western Australia at the University there, who was doing a study uh, of the presence of atopy in children uh, in indigenous countries versus developed countries. And you're probably aware of this work. This was done in the uh, 80s and 90s, in which he and his colleagues were able to show and published in, in, in top-level journals that there was a very interesting inverse correlation between, uh, I guess you would call it sanitation and industrialization, and the presence of, uh, uh, of celiac, uh, excuse me, the presence of uh, atopy in, in children. And they found that the countries that had the, uh, the poorest um, sanitation and hygiene uh, had the least prevalence of uh, Atopy and the, the more industrialized countries with more sanitation and hygiene had the highest prevalence. And so they started asking, why would this be? And they eventually traced it back to the presence and absence of worms, of helminths in the digestive systems of children. And they said that the children that had worms in the less industrialized countries somehow were having less uh, immune response that was associated with inflammation and atopy, asthma, eczema, and so forth. Uh, than those kids that had less worms in the developed countries. So then they said, well, what's about worms? And they found that on the surface of certain helminths uh, are found these, uh, these mucus, mucopolysaccharides. And if you've ever fished with worms, you know what they are. They're the slimy substances that worms secrete. And some of those mucopolysaccharides that worms secrete are able to downregulate the inflammatory messages in the gut immune system. And so they actually calm down an overactive immune system. So now we have two examples of interesting environmental agents that can trigger in the gut different immunological reactions uh, that then can have systemic effects on inflammatory conditions, either in infants or in children and adults. So that then leads us to ask the question, what is the complex nature of the relationship between diets that contain all sorts of interesting uh, bioactive substances that may either activate the immune system or deactivate the immune system of the gut, and how do those dietary constituents interface with the complexity of the microbiome to give rise to people that are walking around with 
chronic inflammatory conditions of unknown origin versus those individuals that uh, do not have those problems. So that is kind of the intellectual development of the field. Now we can go from that platform to actually start exploring how individual phytochemistry, phytochemicals found in plant foods participate in this process. I, I hope I've made at least the background understandable. Uh, no, absolutely. That's fantastic. Touching all those um, gems about the, the, the hygiene hypothesis and so forth. Um, maybe an illustrative case as well is the if we touch upon that paper you, you um, authored recently on Acamanzia mucinophilia, which um, the name indicates about the, uh, the the mucus layer and the organism responsible for at least or in part for help maintain that mucus layer. And the phytochemicals also tie into there. So would you better just tell the listeners about that paper and, and the concepts behind that? You know, it's, it's, uh, I have to say to the listeners, it, it's not like we've been practicing this, but it's pretty amazing because you segued, you segued perfectly to what I wanted to say. Okay. Next. So that, that was, uh, I would say that was brilliant segue. So um, again, going back to our, our shared um, Australian-U.S. Uh, connection, uh, you all had at one of your congresses a number of years ago uh, an individual uh, from uh, Catholic University yes. of Louvain in Belgium, uh, Patrice Connie, uh, who we were collaborating with in America in our, uh, our research work, uh, that he and his, his colleague, uh, Nathalie Delzen, uh, who then both of them had taken over the laboratory of their, of their uh, former advisor, who is now a, a professor emeritus, uh, Marcel Rubafaw, who was one of the founders of this whole symbiotic, uh, in fact, I think he actually coined the term symbiosis uh, from the work that he had done uh, over 20 years. So um, when Patrice Connie came to speak at the Congress a number of years ago, that's probably, I would estimate, about 10 years ago, uh, that he had talked about endotoxemia, he talked about the uh, relationship of the microbiome and specific uh, gut bacteria to the release of uh, bacterial endotoxins, lipopolysaccharides, that then initiates inflammatory systemic reactions and and how that influences then insulin signaling and ultimately even obesity. Uh, you know, this was a very early part of the what is now kind of in the fore news. Uh, and back then, it was kind of uh, I, I think looked at with some degree of uh, skepticism by a lot of people in the field. Now it's pretty much been well established. So I give the Connie and Delzen group a tremendous amount of uh, props for being some of the early people that really have uh, proven this, this model. So the, one of the uh, organisms, as, um, as uh, Connie and Delvin started to deeply investigate this and collaborate with many other groups around the world, and by the way, I think that their group has now got over 100 publications over the last 10 years in this area, so they're highly uh, productive and, and really leaders in the field. They came on this organism, uh, Acromantia mucinophilia, that seemed to be very important for uh, preventing some of the uh, gut permeability, endotoxic shock that occurs from uh, dietary principles that can lead to inflammatory, systemic inflammatory conditions. And they started, you know, doing some early microbiology and there are other uh, groups that picked up on this. Now, with that as a long-winded introduction, let me now talk to the issue of nature medicine, which is considered one of the premier journals in the world, in the English-speaking world, uh, and I'm now speaking to uh, the first volume of 2017, so this is 
January 2017, so I don't want to call it hot, hot off the presses, but <laughs> I want to say it's, it's reasonably recent. And um, in this issue of, uh, of Nature Medicine, one of the cover stories is entitled In Acromancia Mucinophilia Protein Improving Metabolism. And um, what they show under the news and views section of this journal uh, is that there's a microbial protein from Acromancia mucinophilia that is found to alleviate metabolic syndrome. It improves uh, insulin sensitivity. It reduces uh, inflammatory signaling through alteration of uh, the toll-like receptor activations, this family of uh, G-protein-coupled receptors that are involved with, um, with the activation of, uh, of the inflammatory cascade. And there's actually a, a wonderful little diagram, little cartoon, uh, showing how Acromancia mucinophilia uh, coats the surface of the, uh, uh, the, the gut barrier cells and prevents the activity of lipopolysaccharides being available to the uh, toll-like receptors, thereby quenching or damping, like you might say, a blanket over these receptors to prevent their activation of the inflammatory cascade. And so reducing inflammation, reducing insulin resistance, reducing adipocyte hypertrophy, reducing uh, myocellular lipotoxicity, which is what happens when fat infiltrates the muscle, and reducing the tendency towards fat infiltration into the liver, so-called uh, hepatic steatosis or non-alcoholic fatty uh, liver disease. So this is a, then you say, well, you know, what, what is it that seems to activate um, this uh, membrane protein uh, that is called in acromancy and mucinophilia? And what you find is that there are specific uh, phytochemicals that have been identified to have this positive effect, one of which uh, is the um, uh, phytochemicals that have been found actually as, as uh, complex uh, flavonoids to reduce uh, inflammation in the diet, and that's artemisian, which is found in the botanical Artemisia annua <coughs> that you're probably familiar with and that that is uh, one of a family of botanicals that uh, activates the um, acromantia mucinophilia to produce these anti-inflammatory mucins. So you start to see that there's a very complex interaction between various phytochemicals, various components of our microbiome, and our systemic immune system. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so yes, you, you've identified in your paper constituents like curcumin and EC uh, uh, from green tea, the EGC. Uh, sorry, I was getting it wrong. ECGC and um, blueberries and so forth. Um, might go on a little bit of a tangent here, but it um, spiked my interest that discussion about how these um, phytochemicals act on on this microorganism rather than perhaps um, you know internally or, or systemically and. Uh, a good case would be the um, curcumin, and you're probably aware of it, and I think you may have even coined the term about this sort of uh, curcumin bioavailability arms race where a lot of uh, manufacturers or suppliers are boasting about how well the curcumin is absorbed. Whilst I don't think that's you know a bad thing, um, sometimes that can be maybe perhaps a little misleading because potentially, or well, the question may arise, does curcumin work in the gut as well as systemically? And I believe you've, you've looked into this a little bit? Yes, I think, uh, again, this is a really, really interesting um, question and, and one that deserves a lot of um, 
I think, deep thinking because we made the assumption because we have a pharmaceutical model that we uh, often use as an analogy that, that nutrients always work like, like drugs work. And that is if they get absorbed and into the body across the intestinal tract if they're orally consumed or they get injected in the case of drugs. And then they go to a site, a target on a cell of a specific type and they influence that target to produce their outcome. And so that's the kind of model that most of us think of. And so we would then say the more bioavailability, the better because you're going to have more uh, uh, bioactive agent available uh, when it gets absorbed that can influence the function of those cells. And I don't want to call that wrong. That is not wrong, but what we're now recognizing, just as it's recognized in pharmaceutical science that there are certain antibiotics that do not get absorbed into the gut, that they across the gut they actually just work in the intestinal tract itself, and they have very important roles to play in specific therapeutic applications. You don't even need to absorb them in the body to be useful. Similarly, with certain of these uh, phytochemicals, uh, you know, people say, well, those are like stones. They don't get dissolved, and, and, and they are not available at all into the body, and so they must not be active. But now we're finding that there are receptors on the gut mucosal surface in which these uh, insoluble or semi-soluble phytochemicals they actually don't work by being absorbed. They work by binding to these receptor sites on the gut and triggering specific kinds of uh, effects on the immune system that don't require absorption. Now, it may be, and I think uh, we're, we're finding in some of our research that it is true, that there can be two components of uh, mechanisms by which certain phytochemicals work. There can be the uh, effects that they have directly on the gut uh, receptor sites like the GPCRs I was just mentioning, like toll-like receptors, um, so they don't need to be absorbed to have that effect. Or there may also be some that's absorbed and that it gets transmitted or trans uh, transferred and, and uh, ultimately is delivered to certain cells where it can actually work intracellularly uh, in the body itself. So you may have a combination of factors, but I would I, my takeaway from this discussion is we don't necessarily have to have high bioavailability to have high activity. And curcumin is a very good example. We and others have done studies on curcumin showing that normal curcumin from turmeric is very poorly absorbed. It, it ends up, you know, kind of sticking to the intestinal lining. But it has very high biological activity systemically through its effect on signaling. Uh, so I, I think we're dispelling some some uh, myths that you necessarily have to be highly bioavailable to get activity. Fantastic. Yeah, I think um, for me, it's what whatever extract you're using does it have the clinical evidence as well as the, the bioavailability, and um, rather than just being lured into the the graphs of how how um, high the bioavailability spike is. Um, just to sort of uh, change tact a little bit, I wanted to pick your brains on a few areas that sort of been plaguing my mind for a while in the, the microbiome and also touch upon some of the, the newer research, um, which I put you on the spot on, on off-air prior to our starting, and you are all over these uh, articles you knew about them, the, the researchers and, and where they're from and so forth. So um, I'm sure you'll handle this comfortably. But first of all, um, this emerging story, I wouldn't say emerging, but something that's been on for a little while was this sort of early view about the the file of the bacteroides versus the Firmicutes in obesity uh, it seemed quite clear early on in uh, at least mouse models about this this balance and how it influences obesity. But 
uh, subsequent research in humans shows it's quite murky. Would you be able to give us a bit of a, an update or your take on, on this um, balance? Yes, I think that's a really uh, interesting part of our evolving understanding. Um, so we, we've known for decades that gut bacteria synthesize, you know, both vitamins and minerals and, uh, not minerals, vitamins and amino acids and help uh, degrade toxins. So that's, that's not been uh, very surprising. Um, but the past decade, it's become clear that the microbiome's influence on health is, uh, is much more profound than we, we previously understood. And so when we start thinking of 13 trillion human cells, uh, and that there are something like, uh, oh, gee whiz, uh, many more uh, microbial cells in our gut, then there are human cells in the whole body, probably as many as 800 times more. Uh, our body has a huge amount of microbial DNA that it is um, is responding to our diet because that's the first place it's going to come in contact with for the outside environment in our in our body. And how that then interrelates then with um, alteration of function systemically and. When, when we start putting that together um, in terms of the phyla, the big uh, phyla that are present within our GI microbiome, there are two major phyla that can be identified. There are thousands of organisms, but two major phyla, uh, the Firmicutes uh, and the Bacteroidetes. And in doing association studies of these two phyla, it's been found in humans that people that have a preponderance of the Firmicutes, as, con as uh, contrast to a smaller percentage of the Bacteroidetes, are individuals that have a history or a clinical presentation of more frequent uh, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, inflammation, obesity. And uh, if you start looking at the, uh, the, the diet connections to that, it's been found that uh, high animal protein-based diets or high processed food-based diets seem to be more associated with preponderance of Firmicutes than Bacteroidetes. Um, now, I want to be very cautious here because uh, this can vary from person to person. I'm giving very general associations here and sure. you have to be cautious not to, to say that this is like a diagnostic tool. It's more of a, it's a, a general concept. Um, I was in a, part, a, a participant in a um, study called the Pioneer 100 study. We had 105 people I'm still involved with this group. This is uh, three years and we've uh, been measuring all sorts of things. I've probably had over a million data points on my on my biochemistry and biology uh, taken over the last three years. I'm having um, a stool microbiome testing done every quarter and correlating it as are the other people in the study. And we're correlating it with our um, diet and lifestyle and, and other parameters. And what I can say, looking at my own um, <clears throat> speciation in my microbiome over the course of the last three years, when I'm under stress, when i am uh, been traveling a lot, I'm not getting enough of the, you know, the kind of sleep or exercise I would like. Uh, when, when, when a diet's been off, because I've been eating uh, less than what I would like to and more of what's convenient, um, I can see my, uh, within a quarter, my um, the, the phyla ratios of the uh, Firmicutes to the Bacteroidetes uh, change and when I get back on my program, uh, they renormalize back into a, a higher ratio of bacteria to Firmicutes. 
So using an N of 1 experiment, which is me, uh, I can see some correlation. I, I wouldn't want to overly generalize it, but it does seem to track with what the, the literature uh, is seeing in general. And as you pointed out, this is also um, consistent to some extent with the work that's been done in, uh, in rodents in which you can control the diet and the environment of the rodents and you can start with germ-free animals and you can introduce specific foods or bacteria and start looking at the effect that different microbiota has on physiology and uh, and, and you see the same kind of, of, of under control conditions in animals, the same kind of thing happening, particularly in the DL mouse model, the diet-induced obesity model of mice, if you start giving them a lot of fat in their diet, their uh, microbiota changes with increased uh, formigates and, and lowered uh, bacteroides, and they start to have diabetes and obesity. So I, I think that there are a lot of um, bits of information that point towards a relationship here without getting to the granularity that we can say specific diagnostic criteria, but it gives us a general marker. And, and that ties together then with obesity and type 2 diabetes and, uh, and the uh, relationships of um, insulin-resistant uh, syndromes. And, and I was very um, interested to see that in, in, in the, uh, the January 31st issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, there is a actually a paper entitled The Microbiome and the Risk for Obesity and Diabetes in which they, they go through this whole discussion that I just um, summarized in some detail showing that this is a, really an emerging uh, view of the important role the microbiota plays in, uh, in, in physiology. And in fact, if you go to the journal Cell, which is a very highly um, uh, kind of reviewed um, basic biology journal, there is a wonderful paper uh, talking about microbiota in, in uh, animal-controlled studies regulating motor deficits in neuroinflammatory models of Parkinson's disease. So and th this is work that uh, comes uh, from both Rob Knight that you've uh, already uh, talked about that will be after Congress uh, in 2017, and other investigators at the California Institute of Technology showing that uh, this model of Parkinson's disease is uh, is is triggered by uh, alterations in the gut microbiome. And then that ties, lastly, just to show the kind of literature that's emerging to a, a very remarkably rich review paper that just appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled uh, The Human Intestinal Microbiome and Health and Disease. This is uh, Susan Lynch and, and Olaf yes. Peterson's work uh, at the gastroenterology at uh, University of California, San Francisco. This appeared in the December 15th issue last year of the New England Journal of Medicine. So it's, these are just illustrative of the fact that this is more than just idle talk. What, what Patrice Connie and Nathalie Delzen started talking about 15 years ago is now really starting to be the point of a, of a new view in medicine. Yeah, that's a, a great summary. Um, a couple of things that, that sprung to mind there, which um, maybe we'll, we'll flesh out certainly over time, is that um, perhaps the microbiome is also, um, slave's probably a poor word, but dependent on our lifestyle choices, as you said, like lack of sleep and exercise and, and um, jet lag and so forth. And I think that's what Rob Knight has been doing tirelessly, uh, measuring his, micro, um, his microbiome day in, day out for many, many years, and he's trying to obviously find the correlation and extending that to the American Gut Project. So, yeah, I'm curious to find out over time if it's not just simple probiotics and fibre will... Um, change your diversity, but also your your stress and your lifestyle. And we're going to get um, 
Dr. Alan Logan to talk about this dysbiotic drift at Congress as well, about green space versus grey space and how that can really influence your, your microbiome. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so that well, leads me I on talk, to... Can I, you can go I for it, please. please. I, I, think, I think what you said is absolutely brilliant. I mean, you said it's very matter-of-factly, but I, I believe that that was really news to use uh, that you just uh, stated, and I, I'm really pleased to hear that's going to be more fully explored in Congress. And you also alluded uh, in part to this uh, extraordinary work that uh, was published a couple of years ago, again in the journal Cell, I think it was in 2015, that uh, talks about personalized nutrition uh, and glycemic responses and ties together uh, the microbiome. This is work uh, by uh, David Seven and uh, Aaron Siegel and their group at uh, Haifa University and, and Weizmann Institute in Israel. And uh, I think this is extraordinary uh, pioneering work because with exhaustive genomic and microbiomic work, they were able to show this kind of drift that you're talking about with, uh, with, with individuals, humans, uh, that they can actually predict their uh, drift of glycemic responses into insulin resistance uh, based on the interrelationship between the microbiome and the genome. So I think that this is not just uh, idle. This is really getting to science, and, and it's opening up uh, what we've been talking about for nearly 30 years. It's making <laughs> it very real. It's pretty darn exciting. Exactly. So to um, steal one of your phrases, let's um, go where the, to where the, the rubber meets the road and um, what we can do today in practice with all these new tests and tools available. One area that I'm um, struggling to, to get a handle on is the, the tests available and when we should be doing them and what we should, how we should be interpreting them. So we've got obviously the old culture base where we can look for um, pathogens and parasites, and the, but the newer ones also looking at diversity. Could you give me a bit of an update on the, the newer tests and, and how you see they fit in functional medicine currently? Yes, yeah, so I think that um, we're at a transition point actually, uh, and this occurs as a consequence of what you know has been the exponential decrease in the cost of doing uh, genomic sequencing over the last uh, few years. Um, and the way that uh, uh, kind of we have been measuring speciation of bacteria in the gut with microbiome over the last few years is through uh, ribosomal 16S uh, analysis, which is presumptive but not very specific to individual uh, species. So it gives us kind of general phyla, but it doesn't get down to the level of granularity and specificity as you'd like. With the new tests that are next-gen sequencing of the microbiome, the metagenome, uh, that have become much more cost-effective, and I'm not saying every person is going to have this done presently, but uh, we, we see this eventually in the, in, the, in, the, in the near future, becoming a lab test whose cost will be a, a comparable with uh, most lab tests believe it or not, uh, the next gene in sequencing of the metagenome will become that cost-effective that you'll then start really being able to have the kind of diagnostic information, or let's call it even prognostic information it needs, you need to start really precisely individualizing therapy. And it's, this is a research tool right now, but it, it is starting to drift because of the expense of going down and down into early adopters in which certain labs are starting to provide this to consumers. And um, as we get a million um, metagenomes analyzed and uh, uh, informatically uh, dissected, I think we're going to see extraordinary 
precision in our ability to prognosticate uh, how diet and lifestyle can, uh, are really influencing systemic health through the microbiome. So if you were to say, okay, what should we do today? I still think the 16S analysis of um, broad speciation is, is useful. And I think uh, the construct is uh, diversity is the king. You don't want mm. uh, a preponderance of just one phyla. And this is almost an ecological principle that diversity means stability. So you want uh, a balance of Firmicutes and Dacuridates, but you also want a diversity of, of speciation to the level that you can measure it now in 16S. And the nice thing is that uh, this the diet and lifestyle will change that uh, microbiome very rapidly. Uh, I think Rob Knight and we also did some serial uh, some analyses in in individuals showing that you can show in, in 48 hours uh, if you considerably change the diet, you can say changes in the in the uh, 16S microbiome analysis. So at least you've got some sensitivity to what's going on in that person's lifestyle. Some people might say it's way too sensitive, but it gives you at least a tracking tool for looking at whether the, your systemic symptoms might be related to imbalanced gut flora. Great, thank you. And we can't wait to uh, find out more about it uh, at Congress. Um, so we're about to wrap up, and I should really give you the opportunity to um, talk about your book. I think it's been a, a New York Times bestseller. So quickly, just uh, if you can give our listeners an understanding of what the, the book's about and who's it pitched for. Yeah, thank you. Uh, disease delusion probably sounds almost like an oxymoron because... Uh, we know they're diseases, so why, why it would be a delusion? And I think uh, it's not a delusion that we have diseases. The delusion is that uh, for most people, the construct is that they're inherited, they're locked into our genes, and there's nothing we can do about them. Uh, and I think we've all learned over the last few years that our genes are much more plastic in the way they express themselves uh, than we previously thought when we were studying Mendel's laws of genetics. And it's this genetic plasticity that relates to our future of healthcare. Uh, because we can alter the way genes are expressed. We're not changing the genes in and of themselves, but we're expressing, we're altering the epigenetic modulation of the genes in their expression patterns, going from an expression of uh, alarm, maybe, to a, an expression of being at peace with ourselves. And so the, um, the book really talks about this concept and how it can be employed in, in the functional medicine model, knowing that uh, in functional medicine we, we really uh, focus on what we call seven core physiological processes, um, detoxification, gastrointestinal function, uh, musculoskeletal function, uh, uh, cell signaling, immune function, uh, mitochondrial bio-oxidative function as it relates to bioenergetics. So these seven buckets that we put this information into. And in the book, I, I try to take the reader through how you can assess an individual based upon this emerging concept of these seven core physiological processes and how they relate to alterations in gene expression patterns and then what to do to normalize them to make angry genes uh, into happy smiling genes and, um, and uh, the, the book was written for what I would call the advanced uh, uh, kind of reader it's not it's not an introductory book for the for the first uh, stop along the road of, of, um, of health but for those individuals who have really been in this field and are, are interested in really exploring at a higher level how they can start understanding this this cutting-edge information, I think the book uh, has served a very useful purpose. Great. Another one for our listeners to look into. So, yeah, if I could really encourage listeners. Oh, and I 
must also mention your FM user now um, open source for all listeners. Um, you've, got, you've moved from the prescription to, to um, publishing online. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Our whole um, objective with uh, the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute is to make available this information in a, in a public access free form. They can either go to uh, jeffreyblan.com, my own website, that's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-B-L-A-N-D.com, or they can go to uh, plminstitute.org and, and download this information all uh, freely available. Fantastic. We'll put all those links on our website. Well, Jeff, I could spend all day um, speaking to you and um, everybody, all my colleagues are envious that I got the opportunity. I'm, I'm really, really thrilled. Um, so thanks again. We look forward to seeing you in 2017. I can't thank you enough for your time today. Well, Nathan, let me just say one last thing. I, I want to tell you how much I appreciate um, you personally and, and your colleagues uh, who are taking this model forward. Uh, you know, I, I've been doing this for a number of years, <laughs> and now I, I guess it's, it's going uh, on to be 40 years. And you always hope that, uh, you know, your, your concepts or what you've been doing might have enough stickiness that it'll uh, intrigue really thoughtful people with bright minds who are willing to take the... Uh, the baton and, and move it to the next level. And, and, uh, and knowing there are people like yourselves who are doing that, it gives me a great sense of, of hope that this model is just going to continue to grow and have more impact. And in the end, it's, uh, it's really there to try to help reduce human suffering and, and, and give answers to complex uh, chronic illness that people have had failures in, in getting on top of. And so I, I just want to thank you and all of your colleagues for your advocacy and, and, and moving this forward. Oh, thank you, Jeff. That's most appreciated. Well, thanks again, and um, as I said, look forward to seeing you uh, very soon in the person. I do as well, and I can hardly wait to um, once again touch bases with all my, uh, my colleagues here in Australia. You take um, care. Thank you.